Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 11th, 2018, and my guest is author and physicist Alan Lightman. I first encountered his writing years ago with his extraordinary novel, Einstein's Dreams, which I recommend highly. His latest book is Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine, which is our topic for today. Alan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me, Russ. This is a short book that bristles with ideas and some beautiful poetic writing. It's a book about being a thinking human being. It's about the relationship between religion and science. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I want to start with our desire as human beings for absolutes that you write about and how science has systematically dismantled many of those absolutes, if not all of them, and made them harder to believe in. Uh, What do you mean by that idea of an absolute and how science has affected it? By by absolute, I mean uh, belief in qualities uh, that cannot be proven uh, but seem to be uh, anchors for our existence, like permanence, immortality, eternity, certainty, unity. Uh, these are some of the qualities that I mean, uh, indivisibility. And uh, although those qualities – those those concepts are most of them are, are abstract. Uh, they have sometimes been associated with with uh, physical objects. Uh, for example, uh, the idea of unity and indivisibility and destructibility. That idea. Uh, I should just go back and mention that, of course, the the, the immortal soul and and God are uh, some of the absolutes. Uh, but the the physical atom uh, uh, has been associated with the idea of unity and indestructibility and indivisibility. Uh, and uh, stars have been associated with, with the idea of, of eternity, divinity, indestructibility, permanence, uh, for example. And uh, modern science has shown that most of the absolutes that are associated with physical ideas, uh, physical objects, that is, at least the, the, the physical object has been shown not to embody the absolute. So, for example, uh, stars, uh, uh, stars have been shown to uh, be finite to eventually burn up their nuclear fuel and die. So stars are not permanent. They're not indestructible. Uh, they're not divine because we've shown that stars are made out of material stuff like we have on Earth. Uh, and uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s, atoms were split, and we continue to find smaller and smaller parts of the atom. Uh, the atom is not uh, permanent either. It's not indestructible. It's not indivisible. Uh Probably the greatest absolute for unity is is the universe as a whole. 
Um, you can't get a bigger unity than the universe as a whole. Uh, universe. And uh, in the last 20 years or so, there has been evidence, uh, both theoretical and experimental, that there are, are that there may be a large number of universes in addition to ours. So even uh, in our universe, uh, we find that there's a multiplicity rather than a unity. And uh, these scientific discoveries don't disprove the absolutes, but they bring them into question since their, their physical counterpoints parts uh, do not embody the qualities of the absolute. One of the poignant and, and powerful parts of this book is that as you write those things in different ways and different examples, the book remains an incredible uh, testament to awe and, mm-hmm. and the awesomeness in the old sense of the word of the physical world mm-hmm. and the world we live in that we have to confront as, mm-hmm. as thinking human beings. So as you describe the loss of these absolutes from the scientific perspective, you concede at various places the natural yearnings that we have to hold on to them. Yes. So talk about that because that's – it's really um, – I think you describe in, in, in very powerful ways the tension uh, that a thinking person has to have, I think religious or not, about mm-hmm. this, um, this, this reality that, that we understand more and more about the world. The more we understand, the less uh, it seems to be permanent, reliable, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and spiritual. It seems to be mainly physical. Mm-hmm. So talk mm-hmm. about that tension. Well, I think that that for thousands of years, there's been a tension between the material and the immaterial. That uh, is, on the one hand, the desire to to understand the universe is made out of material as a physical thing, and, and all of our science is based upon that, uh, the reduction of phenomena to uh, to, to by rationality, by method, uh, by quantifying. And, and all of those deductions lead us to believe that nothing is permanent, uh, that everything passes away, uh, nothing is, is unified. Uh, but I think at the same time, for thousands of years, we have had a yearning for permanence, uh, for something that outlasts our, our brief human life, and uh, you can go all the way back to the to the to the magnon caves, where you can see burial sites near the caves where the the magnon people prepared their dead their dead for the next life. Uh, uh, I think that that our own impending death, our own mortality, uh, is one of the 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 greatest uh, drivers of our longing for immortality. Uh, that uh, longing for the soul, for God, for something that that that's permanent, that that outlives our fleeting lives, and so. That's where the, the tension comes about. The, 
the uh, uh, our 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 observation and our experience with the physical world uh, that it seems to be material and impermanent, and yet uh, and our own impending deaths, and yet our desire uh, to to live forever, at least to have some part of us that lives forever, or even if it's not part of us, if it's not our immortal souls, that there be something in the universe, or even maybe perhaps beyond the universe, that is eternal. Uh, and that that thought brings us comfort in the face of our own impending death. Why do you think we care? Obviously, our impending death is a fact. Our awareness of our impending death is somewhat, maybe totally, almost unique. Maybe there are some animals mm-hmm. that are aware of death. They watch their fellow creatures die. I don't know whether mm-hmm. they can look forward to – if they can expect their own deaths. But we have that awareness. We also are, of course, a brain inside a physical body, a physical body mm-hmm. that's very appetite-driven mm-hmm. like all animals. And mm-hmm. yet – we find some conflict between an urge to satisfy those appetites in all kinds of different ways and and at the same time desire that there's more to life than just the satisfying mm-hmm. of those appetites. Why would that be? Well, I think there are two factors there. It's, it's a wonderful question, and, and I, I imagine that, that some animals with higher levels of consciousness must be aware of their own deaths. But um, one factor, I think, is our fear of nothingness. Um, And you can read this all the way back in the writings of Lucretius and the nature of things. Uh, One of the reasons why Lucretius invoked atoms uh, and materiality is because he wanted to assuage the the fears of, of people about Nothingness, uh, uh, the void, nothingness is, is a very fearsome prospect. Uh, and the other, I think, is our search for meaning. And and I, I think that that it, it that the, the desire to find meaning in the world, meaning for both yourself and meaning for the cosmos, must require a very high level of intelligence and and brain development and consciousness. I, I know that. The dolphins and chimpanzees are, are very smart animals, but I, I don't know whether they have a quest for meaning uh, the way that human beings do, and it would be hard to document that. But I know that Homo sapiens at least want to find meaning in their lives, uh, whether you're you're consciously searching for meaning or whether you're unconsciously serving, searching for meaning, and, and many of us do that by making friends, by, by devoting ourselves to our family, by trying to write books or, uh, and so on. But I think, uh, and I, I'm speaking now personally of me, but I think it's true of, of other people as well, that, that I think that in our search for meaning, that, that permanence is a quality that we associate with meaning. If, if something lasts a very long time, uh, that has a possibility of more meaning 
than something that's very fleeting. You know, if you if you if you have a good meal at a Chinese restaurant, uh, you feel uh, happy and and satisfied and content for a few hours, and then it passes away. It's a it's a fleeting experience. Uh, but if you think that your your children and your grandchildren and your and your great grandchildren are going to remember you and 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 fondly look at photographs of you and 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 be proud of you if you've done good deeds in the world, uh, that seems to have more meaning. And so we associate meaning with permanence, uh, whether that's valid or not. Uh, we do that, and I think that's one of the reasons why we have a yearning for something that's permanent. So I want to take a depressing but fascinating example from the book. You talk about a, uh, an ant colony that somehow develops art and music under the ground and somehow lasts for 100 years, which is an incredibly long time for an ant colony. Mm-hmm. It speculates, the ants speculate about their role in the, in the cosmos, but then a flood comes along and and wipes them out, even though it lasted a hundred years, does it have any? There's nothing left, mm-hmm. and and you raise the specter, and I, I found this deeply haunting. And I, actually, I don't find it as depressing as as I might, <laughs> but maybe that's because I I have some religious faith. The the specter that the universe's life is finite, as you said, mm-hmm. all the stars will burn out, mm-hmm. King Lear will be forgotten, mm-hmm. Bach will be forgotten. Even Lady Gaga will be forgotten. Even if we go to a different, I know it's hard to believe, but even if we go to a different galaxy, but if we develop the ability to get -hmm. off this planet when our star burns out, they're all going to burn out slowly, Mm -hmm. inexorably, and then they'll be gone. And this Mm -hmm. thing, whatever it is, and I guess in a way there's something deeply depressing about that, just like death is is challenging to, to confront. But at the same time, it forces you to realize that there's a deeper mystery at the heart of that 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 can't be avoided or ignored. It can't be the whole thing. Something else is there. Well, what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's one view. That's there must be something more than that. And there are other people who say, no, that's the whole ball of wax. That's all there is. So. Uh, I think many of you, many of us would like to believe that there's something more than that, uh, but we don't know. Well, I would say it differently then maybe. I, I would say clearly, yeah. and I think you hint at this in the book and maybe say it in a different way, our minds – well, I guess Einstein's – I'm going to read the quote from Einstein. Uh, uh, Einstein clearly suggests that our brains can't wrap themselves around the idea, just like the ant – you mm-hmm. don't say it this way, but the ant in that colony that's about to get swept away, you know, they're talking and someone someone hears some thunder and thinks, well, this could be the big one. Mm-hmm. Boy, this is – let's all huddle together and enjoy these last few seconds. There's something else going on, whether it's the storm or whatever it is. I'm not suggesting it's, you know, by definition God or a personal God. That's a huge leap, obviously. But But the idea that the universe comes into being and dies out – can't I don't know I'm having trouble thinking of that as quote the whole thing I know you're right I understand there are people much smarter than I am who who feel that way and I but I say that not oh it's there for God I say that because it, it seems deeply intellectually unsatisfying oh it's it's very unsatisfying and it's, it's unsatisfying for me as well uh, that it, that that would be the whole thing 
I mean, even if you take the point of view that there are other universes out there, and, and many physicists now have this view, and that universes are constantly coming into being by fluctuations in the quantum foam, uh, which which we, you know, there we can't prove that, but but that that's what a lot of physicists believe. Even if you take that view that there's been an infinite number of universes and ours just is just one. That still doesn't answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, that's a simpler way to ask my question. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's a, you know, if you ponder that for a few minutes, it, it starts to get, uh, it stretches your mind. Uh, you start going around circles and, and you start getting upset. At least I do. And I think one of the, the deep reasons why why people believe in God or a spiritual world is they they want to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Here's a quote from the book that I love. You write, the most profound questions seem to have this fascinating aspect. Either they have no answer at all or all possible answers seem impossible. And that, <laughs> that kind of captures – Captures yeah. it beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um I, I mentioned I was gonna read an Einstein quote. I wanna I wanna read it and then well, I'm gonna shift gears after this, but I'll let you respond to the Einstein quote. You you it's the quote you you bring in to the book. It, it goes like this. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. Mm -hmm. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand those laws. Close quote. And, you know, to some extent, this is... This is the watchmaker argument. It's it's a mm. more poetic version of it that that there's order in the universe. But I think the more interesting, I don't find that that's not a very compelling argument to somebody today. But I think the 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 poetry of that insight is captured, I think, in what you call the central theorem of science, which is that we can fundamentally understand the laws of nature and that they happen to be written in mathematics. Yeah, now, that, that that also boggles my mind. I. I <laughs> Mathematics yeah. seems to be something we made up, and yet it is how we understand the reality that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, if I, could, if I may, I call it the, 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 the central doctrine oh, sorry. of science. Thank you. I, yeah. But that's just <laughs> sure. uh, very close to what you yeah, called thanks. it. Um, uh uh, I don't think that that mathematics is is made up uh, because we we find a lot of surprises in, in mathematics. Uh, I don't think that we 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 make it up that that the ratio of of the circumference of a circle to its its diameter is is the, is the same number for all circles. Uh, that that's a a truth about the nature of geometry. 
And uh, so I, I think there's and, – and, and I don't think that physicists make up the laws of nature either uh, because we sometimes discover things in physics that surprise us. In fact, that, that, that contradict previous beliefs. Yeah. That's uh, not what I mean by meant up. I made up. I meant there we perceive the world through our consciousness. Yeah. And we see that as reality. And that's yeah. not obviously the case. Right. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Of course a lot of philosophers like George Berkeley have have claimed that that we, we, we have no evidence that there's an external reality outside of our, our minds. Uh that 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 everything mm-hmm. That we believe is uh, is a human construction, uh, but I think that 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 all scientists have to believe in order to set pen to paper or, or set the first ball swinging in motion for the experiment. That all scientists have to believe that there is an external reality out there that's independent of our minds that ex- exists, whether or not we. Uh, we we see it or hear it. It's certainly true that we are are limited and stuck within the three pounds of gray matter in our skulls that that we 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 see and and think everything through our own consciousness and sensory apparatus. Uh, but I think that we have been able to to probe. A world that's external to our own consciousness. Well, it certainly feels that way, and it we get empirical confirmation of that all the time, which mm-hmm. of course may be deceptive. Uh, but it feels that way. You're right. Is it not a testament to our minds that we little human yeah. beings, with our limited sensory apparatus and brief lifespans, stuck on our planet in space, have been able to uncover so much of the workings of nature? It is, end quote. It is extraordinary. Well, if I could just interject one thing, one of my favorite movies is The Matrix. Yep. I don't know whether you saw it. Sure. Um, and what what I found so profound about the movie, besides just the imagination that went into it, is is the suggestion that that everything that we see is an illusion. Yeah. Uh, that we that we're sort of being manipulated by some giant computer somewhere. And it's very hard to disprove that hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And it's, of course, been the basis for mysticism as well mm-hmm. uh, in, in religious life, uh, that, yeah. that, that there's a reality, that this is masking, that we're, mm-hmm. we are living in the dream of God, that we're mm-hmm. – I, I find it fascinating, and it's not a very novel observation, but certainly the um, – Willingness of extremely smart people to suggest the possibility that we are actually living in a giant computer simu- simulation. Yeah. Uh, to me, as an example of of the, I would call it the dogmatic nature of, of human beings. Um, we've replaced the belief in God many of us have with a view that that's a lot like it, <laughs> just without mm-hmm. the obligation. So, or the many of the things that are difficult to rationally accept. So. Uh, and mm-hmm. yet, that that vision of uh, of that techno vision is is a very very clo- analogous to a divine vision. Yeah, it's it's it is, and 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 also like a divine 
vision, it's it's impossible to, to prove or disprove. Uh, it's, it's just one of those sort of recreational musings that comes along with high intelligence. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a great line. Uh, well, let's shift gears. I want to talk about consciousness uh, more explicitly. Um, you write, for me, the human body is the most amazing and baffling phenomenon of the material world. How could it be that the exquisite and indescribable experience of consciousness, of thought and emotion, of the overpowering sense of an I, is simply the result of so many electrical and chemical flows between neurons, which are themselves nothing but atoms and molecules? I am constantly struck dumb by this mystery. Surely the first single-celled creatures moving about in the primeval seas did not have consciousness or thoughts. Evidently, those qualities emerged with increasing complexity and natural selection. I want to start with this question of whether you think uh, advancing artificial intelligence will simulate, replicate a brain. Can we, will, we, will we be able to build a brain in a box that will have uh, – Self-awareness. Yeah, and, and the, the key I like is from, is from Harry Frankfurt, which he applied to animals, but I mentioned it in a previous episode with Rodney Brooks – and I should have attributed it to a teacher of mine, uh, James Jacobson Mazels, who says that, that that the desire about our desires might be the the real test of of consciousness. Will a robot raised uh, built as a as a uh, smart vacuum cleaner yearn to be a driverless car in fifty years? And I have, I have trouble imagining that, but that just could be my my challenge. What are, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Well. I don't think that we know whether we can build a brain, you know, a brain made out of silicon. Uh, we don't know. Um, the 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 experience of consciousness uh, is 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 uh, so uh, unusual. It, it's so unique. I mean, you, you you really can't even talk about the world except through your consciousness. Uh, it's it's it it seems impossible that you could build an artificial consciousness. But if the the brain is nothing but material, then uh, and and and. Consciousness is just the uh, the sensation of all of the electrical and chemical flows between material neurons. Then it it seems in principle that it would be possible to build a, a, a machine that has consciousness. Now I don't know uh, how we would could prove for certain that a particular computer was conscious in the same way that. That I can't prove for certain that, that there are other minds besides mine. That that you know, there's no way that I can prove. I, I can I can design certain benchmarks. You know that 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 I will say something and you will respond to it, or you will do something that surprises me. But I can't prove that there's any other thinking mind in the universe besides my my own. And in the same way. Uh, we could design certain benchmarks for a computer uh, analogous to 
the Turing test or uh, sure. their various tests to, to say whether a, a machine uh, is is intelligent or not. But but any any such set of benchmarks that we design would be would be finite, would be limited. You know, would have you know could have ten thousand or a million different steps in it, but we couldn't do an infinite number of steps. And so we're never going to know for sure whether we have created a computer that fully matches human consciousness. But on any, any limited task, like the ability to drive a car or the ability to, to give interesting answers uh, as a psychologist would on the other side of a curtain, any, any limited task, uh, I am song. sure, write a song, write, write a novel, I'm sure that any finite task, we will eventually be able to build a computer that can do that. And whether that computer has self-awareness and consciousness uh, is something else. I just mentioned to listeners, if you haven't seen the movie Ex Machina, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a somewhat – it's the beginning of a thoughtful look at the, some of these issues, and I, mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. I, I, I liked it also. You know, you mentioned something I've never thought about, which disturbs me a lot, but it's a beautiful and, and incredibly provocative thought. You said, you know, you can never be sure that there are other minds besides your own. And uh, you also can't be sure that the world didn't come into existence a second ago with all the memories that we have that, right. of the past. And mm -hmm. that's sort of irrelevant except for justice and punishment. It'd be a weird, horrible thing to punish something, somebody for something that was really actually only a memory. So that's one place where it matters, but in general, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess you'd also have to ask how you know. You said, other than my own, you also really don't know. The <laughs> I'll speak for myself. Uh, I don't really know that, that I'm thinking. I have the illusion, perhaps, of, of consciousness. I certainly have mm -hmm. the feeling of, of free will, which we know mm -hmm. could be a, an illusion. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I feel as if I'm a thinking being may simply be uh, a deception I, I'm perpetrating on myself or that has been perpetrated on me, right? Right. Well, people have been worrying about this problem since Descartes, yep. Co Coach To Ergo Sum, and I'm sure long before Descartes as well. Uh, it's one of those questions where you go around and around in a circle, and maybe in the end, you come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, I think it's always, that's my one of my views on it. I mean, there are a lot of things you can think about on these questions you can't really Articulate, or as you say, you're in the circle and you struggle to have a coherent description of it. But certainly, uh, we act as if we have free will, and that the people around us do. We, I treat mm -hmm. you as if you mm -hmm. have free will, and you treat me that way. And that's that's a fascinating thing, also in and of itself. But let let, let me move on to I, the philosophers David Chalmers and Thomas Nagel have been deeply troubled by what they claim, and others just take the other view. But they claim that. That our current scientific structure, uh, particularly the biology and and uh, nature of evolution and natural selection, cannot explain what they call qualia, Q U A L I A, the mm -hmm. the texture of daily life, the joy of of a blue sky, and the the poignance of a, a ending of a movie, the, the look in mm -hmm. a, in a loved one's eyes across the table. Mm -hmm. These don't seem to be related to fitness. Uh, would be one way to think about this. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's 
uh, I, I, I don't. I don't think that that's a very good argument or question because I think that it's it's very plausible that some of our uh, aesthetic sense, our moral sense, uh, our creative imagination is a byproduct of qualities that do have selective value, and and. Uh, I mean, you can think of many other things that are that are that are byproducts. Uh, um, I'm, I'll come up with an example in a minute. Uh, but once you develop the the brain to have a certain level of intelligence, which which we do think is has selective value. You know, you might not be able to out outrun a saber toothed tiger, but you can outsmart it. Um, uh, once you have a brain of sufficient level of intelligence, then many of these other things, uh, these qualia, uh, like the joy of looking at a sunset and so on, the 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 pleasure in, in creating art, those are, are byproducts of the high intelligence. So I, I think that you don't need a, a direct uh, selective mechanism in order to explain uh, some of the pleasures of daily life they're just they're just byproducts gravy they're, they're <laughs> gravy yeah but Chalmers doesn't seem to think so I don't know why I've read a variety a little of his work some of his work I've seen him lectures mm-hmm. you know, he claims we're going to need a quote different biology he's not a religious person he's an atheist mm-hmm. but he claims that we're going to need a biology that Here's the way I would say it that I think is the most provocative version of it. It's a little bizarre that the thing that we use to understand the cosmos is the only thing that we struggle to fully understand scientifically. And that's troubling is the way I would say his challenge to the current level of understanding of consciousness is that a, do you think that's a, a good description? And the, the, so do you the, agree? The thing, the thing that we use to understand the cosmos is he's speaking about the human brain. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the question. The consciousness, our minds, consciousness. our. Uh, you know, he says, I think his claim, I'm, I don't know if I'm being fair to him. Yeah. I think his claim is that uh, it seems to reside out. We, it's hard for us to get outside ourselves. All this weird conversation you and I are having right now over the last five minutes it is the fact that. We're stuck with the three-pound of gray mm-hmm. matter, and it's a little strange that, that that's the only thing we struggle to fully comprehend. Uh, that's why I understand his criticism of the state of science about consciousness, and it raised the possibility we won't ever. Some people claim that also, mm-hmm. which is – that's a disturbing aspect of a theory. <laughs> we can understand everything about the evolution of the Big Bang except for the Planck – is it epoch? Is that epoch? Is is extraordinary, but we can't understand why we mm-hmm. had this urge to all the things we've been talking about, the urge for meaning, the connections we have across the dinner table, the longings we have to survive, all, all this seemingly unnecessary stuff for survival. Even if it's just a byproduct, it's a little strange. It's kind of for us, it's the whole show <laughs> or 90 percent of it, 80 well, percent. Well, well, I understand it. I do understand it as as the byproduct. That's that's the way that I understand it, uh, and that does not seem to be 
mysterious to me. Um, it seems, you know, perfectly logical that you you design a tool to to be to do one thing, <clears throat> and then you find out that it can do some other things as well. Uh, that that you know you, you can you can you might design a hammer to hammer a nail, uh, but you find that you can also use it as a paperweight and 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 other uses as well. So. Uh, and of course, when we talk about design here, I'm, I'm speaking about uh, natural selection, emergence, yeah. uh, emergence, or you could say designed by God or whatever your preference is. But it, it doesn't seem unusual to me at all that that, that uh, uh, an organ, uh, in this case the human brain, that was uh, that that evolved to to solve. Uh, immediate life or death problems by a certain strategy that in this case is very high intelligence, that that high intelligence would also lead to uh, that, that brain to, to ask questions about what is the meaning of the cosmos and so on. That, that doesn't seem surprising to me, and I don't think that we need a new biology to explain that. So yeah. I, I'm afraid that, that although I respect uh, Mr. Chalmers, uh, very much. I, I disagree with him on this. I don't think that we need a new biology. There's a lot that we don't understand about biology. We we still don't understand exactly how memory is stored in the neurons, and uh, uh, we don't understand completely how cells learn how to specialize uh, at, at the, in the embryo. But we there's no evidence yet that we need a new biology to understand those or a, a non-material aspect of our biology. It's just that, you know, we're, we have, as science is, is constantly uh, progressing and revising its theories and, and learning more with, with, with new data. And, and that's the way science works. Uh, even when, when physics was, was overthrown and uh, the ideas of physics and, in the 20th century with, with quantum physics and relativity, uh, those new conceptions still uh, fit within a basic understanding of, of cause and effect relationships, forces, and so on. Well, I, I've invited both Charmers and Nagel to be on Econ Talk. I, you know, I don't fully – I may not be representing – Charmer's view mm -hmm. as eloquently or accurately as I know I'm not as, as he would. Um, so maybe that's something that could change down the road. But I don't know. I can't defend his argument mm -hmm. against your challenge. Of, of well, it's an interesting. It's interesting, and and I think it's 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 very important that that people uh, like Chalmers are, are constantly thinking and questioning what we know and what and how we know it. And uh, I hope that we always have. Intellectuals and thinkers like that. One of the beautiful ideas in the book that this is related to, as you just described, our the scientific method essentially, is the belief that scientists have in a, in what I think you call a final theory, a, a full, unified mm -hmm. everything. Uh, and yet you say that when we have it, we won't know for sure. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Well, it's it's a wonderful irony. Um, 
science is is a is a, everything that we believe in science is provisional. Uh, that uh, we consider all of the 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 equations that we write down in the, in the laws for electricity, magnetism, and so on to be approximations to deeper laws. Uh, uh, so uh, science is a process of provision and and ever and ever better approximations. There's some physicists who believe that there that there is an ultimate set of laws which are not approximations, which need no further revision. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Steve Weinberg, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, calls that the final theory. In fact, wrote a whole book called Dreams of a Final Theory. And there, there are a number of physicists, but not all physicists, who believe that such a final set of laws exists. The, the delicious irony of that is that even if there is a final set of laws that require no further approximation that are exact. We would we would never know for sure if we had found them because you can never be certain that tomorrow you might not find it might find some some uh, ex, some physical phenomena that disagrees with your theory. Uh, you can never be sure of that. And so even if we were in possession of Weinberg's final theory, we would never be certain that we had it. So uh, we'd never be able to sort of break out the champagne and pop the cork. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this example before, but uh, I, Charles Peirce, the philosopher, was uh, mentioned this on Econ Talk before. Charles Peirce, the philosopher, uh, built a house – and uh, I think it was described as the uh, – he left the second floor empty for the uh, a ball. It was a ballroom, and the ball mm-hmm. was going to be held when he – the celebration would be held when he discovered the secrets – the secret of, of the universe, the, reason, the meaning of the universe. And mm-hmm. in the description of this, in the essay I was reading, the next sentence is very, very nice. It's, it starts off, while the ball was never held, comma – so we 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 won't always know <laughs> mm-hmm. uh when we get there but and yet my, my impression and this I'd love your reaction to this my impression is that we might feel we were close or at least have a candidate for a final theory if we found it aesthetically pleasing and not a wild agglomeration of mm-hmm. add-ons and mm-hmm. and additions and mm-hmm. caveats right. and footnotes and i i find that really both beautiful and 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 strange yeah well one of the one of the beauties of 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 modern science and especially modern physics is that uh because we're constantly searching for theories to explain gravity and electricity magnetism and so on is that uh, aesthetics, our, our own human sense of aesthetics has been a very good guide to, yeah. to finding the best, the, the, the most correct theory. When I say correct, most correct, I mean the one that agrees with experiment the best. Um, that, that theories uh, or laws, equations that appear to, to be a jumble of add-ons and ad hoc propositions 
don't agree with nature as well as theories that are built on a single unifying and simple idea uh, like Einstein's theory of gravity. Um, now, the, the aesthetics has not always 100% guided us the right way. Uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, we thought we believed in something called parity conservation, P-A-R-I-T-Y, which basically says that that for everything that you see in nature, the mirror image of that also exists in nature. So nature is is – uh, symmetrical Symmetric. under reflection in a mirror. And that seems like a very beautiful, simple idea. And there are examples of it, so it seems... Yeah, there are plenty of examples. <laughs> but in, uh, in, I think in the 1960s that we found certain experiments that showed that that's not true, that the mirror image of nature is not precisely like the first image uh, uh, then another example of that is is the belief for for hundreds and centuries and centuries that the orbits of planets yeah. were perfect circles. Just thinking about it, so much more yeah. satisfying than an ellipse. ellipse it is. It's a loser. So, so sometimes our our sense of aesthetics leads us astray, but most of the time it's been a, a very accurate guide guide g u i d e <laughs> to to uh, the 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 more correct. Laws. Uh, we've had recently had John Gray on the program, the British philosopher, and mm-hmm. he's a, um, a big opponent of this idea of progress that many of us hold, as he claims, and I think often correctly, is dogmatic. Uh, do you have a thought on that? Do we make any progress? We certainly make scientific and technological progress. Uh, we know more about many things. We also know less about many things because we know more about what we don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if you think in terms of human existence and whether it's maybe, – maybe it's not even a meaningful question given the impermanence issues you raised earlier. And the question is, is whether we're, whether you we're think that, making progress yeah, as, 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 a as, species, a as a species. As a species, as a civilization. The, mm-hmm. He claims it's a, this is a leftover from our religious heritage that, that we should reject. It, it's a fascinating point, and it, it, I think many of us do, without thinking, dogmatically assume that life is getting better. And, of course, in many dimensions it is. Of course, in some dimensions it's not. So it's a Well, <laughs> yeah. It makes me think of Steve Pinker's book. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that he, has, uh, he and his assistants have compiled uh, a fair amount of evidence that, so, that, that show that in some ways life has gotten better. On the planet, that there there are fewer wars, there are f- fewer deaths uh, due to starvation. Uh, people live longer. Um, so clearly, there's some measures by which things have gotten better. But I imagine that that there are other measures in which they have not. Um, I'm not sure that that our Moral life is better than it was a thousand years ago. That's Gray's point, mostly. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure that we are happier than we were a thousand years ago. That's um, Gray's point. Yeah. So. And so, good, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. So it just it depends on how you define progress. Yeah. There's there's been a critique of of Picker's work on 
Death and War by uh, Nassim Taleb. I'll, we'll put a link up to it for those who want to read it. It's uh, quite provocative, as as listeners will not be surprised to hear. Uh, before we move on to some physics issues, uh, I want to stick with one more idea from the book, which is the idea of transcendence. And I often think that people who people's ability to experience transcendence is something akin to their musical ear. There may be people who are tone deaf who, who can't mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. it, and there may be people who who swim in it <laughs> mm-hmm. all day mm-hmm. long. I think you give. I think, in fact, you mentioned an example of someone in the book who's just whose life is brimming with with a feeling of of transcendence. Mm-hmm. Talk about your own, if you if you can, your own personal encounters with that, and and how it relates to the issues we've been talking about. I've, I've had. Uh, many what I call transcendent experiences, and and I define that sort of loosely as feeling a connection to something much larger than yourself. And it yep. may or may not involve God. Um, an experience that I mention in the book, although I've had many, is uh, lying in a boat on the ocean at night, lying on my back, looking up at the stars uh, and feeling like I'm connected to the stars and uh, that I'm falling into infinity, that I'm part of the stars and part of the cosmos. And I would imagine that that, that many people have had experiences like that. Um, that. That feeling of being connected to something larger than yourself is not a feeling that can be analyzed scientifically. Uh, even though ultimately it might be... Uh, reducible and rooted in the atoms and molecules in your neurons, uh, you you could hook a, a giant computer up to my brain and read out the electrical output of every one of my hundred billion neurons when I was lying in that boat looking up at the stars, and and it would not have conveyed the experience or not have described it. And that kind of experience. Uh, which is very personal, it's, it's very vital, it's immediate, it, it cannot be invalidated by, by anybody else. Uh, that, for me, is, is part of my spiritual universe. And, and what, I, uh, what, I, what I did in that book and, and what I – it sort of represents what I, the, the, the tension I have in my entire life is – is reconciling my life as a scientist with my life as a, as a human being uh, who has these transcendent experiences and, and, and feels that there is a, a spiritual world in addition to the physical world. Even though, of course, we have no evidence for it. Except, we have no e- Except for that personal, which could just be the, the neurons firing, as you say. Yeah. Uh, I've talked about it before on here, but on the show, but um, it's one of my favorite things in the world, which is when Andrew Wiles, having f- discovered that his proof of Fermat's last mm-hmm. theorem had actually been flawed, spent a year uh, trying to reconstruct it. And then one day, um, it just came to him. It, well, he, he didn't, he did the right answer, the correct yeah. proof. He didn't work on it 
intensely, and, and he did, but that didn't work. It just mm-hmm. one day he saw it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is, you know, I think the closest thing that a person, it, it doesn't make sense, but it, it's a transcendent experience, certainly. It, it is something akin to a spiritual slash religious experience. Mm-hmm. It's certainly part, you know, I'm a mere economist, but my creative work as a writer and and in other areas, I experience that at times, and I think nothing like that. But but the but that extraordinary it's a physical feeling. It's not just uh, relief. It it is a mm-hmm. an explosion of mm-hmm. an expansion of awareness of your place in the world mm-hmm. that your boat experience captures. But in my ex- I have those two in the in the natural world. Uh, and the stars do a lot for me, uh, but certainly intellectual activity has that character. Na- and you mentioned that in the book as well. Yeah, I've I've had that with with intellectual activity. I've, I've uh, had an experience similar to what Andrew Wiles described, although not as monumental as his discovery, of course. But it is a beautiful, beautiful experience. Uh, it's it's a majestic experience and uh the uh uh i'm trying to th- uh is it hinduism i think the hinduism has a a, a concept called dakshan uh an experience they call dakshan which is sort of opening yourself up to the divine being open to the divine and, and recognizing it and being open to it. And I think that these transcendent experiences that, that, uh, that we're talking about, that you've had, that Andrew Wiles had, that I've had, and many people have had, is really opening yourself up to the sublime. Uh, yeah. Sublime might be a better word than divine, uh, but being open to that. In Judaism, the... The word I think would be devekut, which is a cleaving, a strange, interesting word because cleave is to both separate from and attach to, which is perfect mm-hmm. for all the paradoxes mm-hmm. and tensions uh, that we're talking about. Uh, I want to turn toward um, just some general issues in, in physics that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. We had um, – we had Chuck Klosterman on uh, long a while back. He wrote a book called "But What If We're Wrong," where he speculates. You know, it's very hard for us to imagine that we're wrong about all the things we know are true, but we know that in the past, things that people thought were true weren't true anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. After a while, and one of the ones examples he gives in there, if I remember correctly, is gravity. Mm-hmm. What do you think of our current understanding of gravity, and do you think it has any possibility of having to be revised? Well, I'd like to to slightly revise that word wrong. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that, well, he's and, selling books. Got to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's that's no, that's a good word for selling books. And maybe my books haven't sold as well because I haven't <laughs> come up with words like that. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's what I like to the way I like to think about our. Endeavor in science is that we're finding better and better approximations to the way that nature behaves. And and getting back to the the, the gravity, that Newton's theory 
was was very accurate for its time and and very successfully predicted the the orbits of planets and many other phenomena and and then in the 19th century we with 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 uh better telescopes we were able to to show that the orbit of mercury did not quite fit newton's theory and then describe uh, describe yeah. the magnitude of that inaccuracy because that blew me away yeah well it was uh the the displacement of the orbit of mercury from where it was supposed to be uh, the displacement in the sky was a, a one, about one hundredth of one degree every century. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing. But and it's amazing that we had telescopes exactly. Yeah, that, that were that precision that were precise yeah. enough, precise enough to be able to find that that minute discrepancy. But but anyway, in 1915, Einstein proposed a, a new theory of gravity. There was a, a better approximation to nature than Newton's theory. And so rather than saying that Newton's theory was, was wrong, I would say that, that Einstein's theory was a better approximation to whatever the underlying truth is in nature. And we do believe that there's an underlying truth. Um, uh, but we know that Einstein's theory also uh, will be replaced by an even more accurate theory. But, uh, we know that Einstein's theory of gravity called general relativity does not include quantum. And uh, we, we think that all, we think that nature is quantum and must be described by quantum theories. And so Einstein's theory will ultimately be replaced. There, there are a number of candidates for replacing it, but we don't know now which one is, is the best candidate. And uh, that's sort of the way that science proceeds uh, with with better and better approximations. But do you think there are things about gravity in the non-quantum area that we don't understand or that will improve our understanding of? Well, of course, you can never you, – you can't be sure. Um, but we, we think that, that Einstein's theory – is 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 a very very accurate theory for all gravitational physics uh, phenomena uh, that that doesn't involve quantum. Uh, uh, it it's made many predictions, uh, black holes, gravitational waves, uh, the 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 very precise orbit of the planet Mercury and other planets. Uh, so, um, uh, of course, we could never be sure that there might not be some phenomena that, that don't fit into Einstein's theory. Uh, but uh, I can just say that, that, that physicists are very, very happy with Einstein's theory uh, when it's uh, – except for quantum phenomena. So I'm going to get the details wrong, but when – but the point is, is pretty clear. When, when there was the test of – whether the uh, gravitational uh, force of the sun was bending the light coming from, mm -hmm. I forget which planet or star. Mm -hmm. but it was a star, yeah. Um, there's some questions whether those data were accurate. Yeah. And that 
Einstein, when asked, what would you have done if if your the results had had contradicted your theory? So, well, I wouldn't believe them because I know my theory is right. Yeah, it's not a very scientific attitude. No, it wasn't, and and I think that that was that was tongue in cheek. I mean, Einstein was known to be very witty. And to say something's tongue in cheek, and I think that that was one of them. Um, Einstein was was you know ultimately a scientist, which means that he was ultimately persuaded persuaded by experimental data. And uh, so so if the if the experiment had come out to disagree with his theory, and and the, the the experiment was repeated many times, and it always disagreed with his theory, he would have given up his theory. We we, we know that Einstein w- was able to to revise his theories when when faced with persuasive uh, experimental evidence contradicting the theory. Uh, I, Einstein's uh, theory of cosmology was that we had a static universe that that was not changing. And when uh, Edwin Hubble in 1929 discovered evidence that the universe is not static, but but expanding, all the galaxies are moving away from each other, Einstein was willing to revise his his cosmological model. So... um, I, I think that 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 ultimately, uh, although Einstein was was an artist, he was a philosopher. Uh, he was a person of, of 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 certain moral standards. He was most importantly a scientist, and I think most scientists are eventually uh, eventually bow down to experimental evidence, no matter how fond they are of their theories well my favorite one of my you've said a number of beautiful things in this conversation but one of my favorites as longtime listeners will not be surprised to hear is i think you've said the phrase you can't be sure more than once and certainly that is a part of the scientific mindset in 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 response to your book by the way i was googling around about Planck because or Planck because i was just shocked by how many things are named after him and um, I saw, I don't know if this is true, but it, it was alleged to be a quote from Freeman Dyson, who's been a guest on this program, uh, saying that Einstein, who was at the time a, a, quote, mere patent clerk, patent office clerk, sent five papers to Planck's, who was the editor of a journal, and Planck published them all without getting referee reports, which, if true, I love that because it means they weren't peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, how would we know they're true? Uh do you have favor- a favorite physicist or two that not living who inspired you, who continue to inspire you? Who are not living? Yeah, yeah. not talking about your thesis advisors. Not a yeah. pretty, uh, I'm sure, influential person in, in your. Yeah, well, I would have to. I would have to say <laughs> Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. Uh, I think those are the two greatest physicists who've ever lived, uh, and and both of them uh, completely. Overthrew contemporary thinking, uh, which at a young age I yeah. should add, uh, which I think took tremendous courage, but is also one of the reasons why we celebrate youth, and we celebrate youth not only in science and mathematics, we celebrate it in sports, we celebrate it in Hollywood, and youth. 
is capable of wonderful things. And uh, 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 so Einstein and Newton were my two greatest heroes. Well, youth is ignorant. It's one of the great disadvantages and advantages, right? Right. Yeah. Which is there, amazing. It is. There's a wonderful – one of my favorite books on Buddhism is called The Beginner's Mind. And that is that notion of, 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 of having uh, a mind that is, that is willing to be a beginner, to, to question authority and to start from scratch. Yeah. Huge part of, I think, being a, a successful human being is to keep that, that naivete, that – Aliveness, yes. that that ecstasy at, at new experiences yeah. that after a while become less ecstatic, and we need to try to capture that. Yeah. Now you've spent, you've dabbled in in multiple worlds. You're a world class physicist um, on the faculty of Harvard, MIT, um, but you're also a, a great writer. Do you have fiction writers, authors who and so have inspired you, who you think particularly fondly of? Well, Virginia Woolf would be one. Uh, I, I, I think that she introduced uh, sort of stream of consciousness writing uh, in which we feel like we're literally in the mind of a of a character. Uh, Dostoevsky is another hero of mine. Uh, Franz Kafka is a hero of mine. These are writers who are no longer living. I'm, I'm assuming that you're talking well, about. In this case, you can ask. You know, you can say whoever. You, who do you, do you like? Some living writers. Oh, I, uh, I love many, many living writers. Uh, uh, I would mention Michael Ondaatje, uh, Annie Prue. Uh, th- th- those are just a, a couple of my favorite writers. Are you a Faulkner fan? Faulkner? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, he, he's one of my favorite writers, too. And, and, of course, he's from the South, as as you and I are. Uh, so that a near neighbor. A near neighbor. That's I, right, in Oxford, Mississippi. But he also, I was just thinking when you mentioned Virginia Woolf, because, you know, if you pick up Sound and the Fury, you will not understand it at first until you understand the project. It's true of a number mm-hmm. of his books, and um, mm-hmm. he was doing. Mm-hmm. He was also young and taking a leap there that was brave. So I want to I want to mm-hmm. close with a quote from a play that I, I asked you before we started recording that you that you're or you're familiar with, which is Arcadia by Tom Stoppard, and it's mm-hmm. it's my favorite play. I'd say period. I've seen it three times. I encourage listeners to check it out if you've never seen it. You can read it; it's not the same, but try to see it if you can. And uh, this quote has uh, – it's from a character, Bernard, who is the the humanities uh, defender at various times. He's not a very likable character through much of the show, but um, Stoppard puts in his mouth a defense of the humanities in the face of science. Um, and uh, I, I want to read it and then get your reaction. Bernard, he's talking about science versus the humanities. He says, oh, you're going to zap me with penicillin and pesticides. Spare me that, and I'll spare you the bomb and aerosols. But don't confuse progress with perfectibility. A great poet is always timely. A great philosopher is an urgent need. 
There's no rush for Isaac Newton. We were quite happy with Aristotle's cosmos. Personally, I preferred it. 55 crystal spheres geared toward God's crankshaft is my idea of a satisfying universe. I can't think of anything more trivial than the speed of light. Quarks, quasars, big bangs, black holes, who gives a shit? How did you people con us out of all that status? And why are you so pleased with yourselves? If knowledge isn't self-knowledge, it isn't doing much, mate. Is the universe expanding? Is it contracting? Is it standing on one leg singing when father painted the parlor? Leave me out. I can expand Mm -hmm. my universe without you. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. And that's a quote from Shelley, who has a role in the show, yeah. in the play. But um, it's a it's an attack on, to some yeah. extent, your worldview, but I, not really in my take on it. But yeah. I'm curious how you'd react to it. Well, I think it's extremely hypocritical because I think Bernard probably profits a lot from <laughs> science and technology. Uh, I mean, he, he when 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 was the time period of this? This is in the modern era of the play. The play takes place in two time periods. I'm pretty sure this would be in like the 1970s. Yeah. Well. uh, Well. Yeah. Okay. This is. I know there were two times. I'd like to see how what Bernard would say uh, if if he if he got um, pneumonia or something (laughs) and and resisted uh, medical treatment. uh, What what he would say about that? So I think it's an incredibly hypocritical quote. Um, I agree with the general sentiment that the, uh, that the humanities are a vital part of, of human life, uh, but I think that his dismissiveness of, of science and technology is, is completely off-base and hypocritical. And I think that Stoppard uh, wrote that uh, just to be provocative. Uh, I, I can't believe that Stoppard really has that view Himself, he, he was trying to provoke the audience and the the the, uh, uh, the 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 comment by by Bernard is so blunt and direct uh, that y- y- you wouldn't really hear those words come out of a real human being's mouth. I don't think. I think the issue he's trying to get at there, which I I, I take a different take on it. I think the issue he's trying to get at is the. The transformation of what is prestigious in our lives, which used to be more the humanities, and as science advanced from bloodletting to um, penicillin, we, as you point out, are desperately eager to have it and have more of it. And we've somehow lost, I think, two things. I think we've lost some of the value of the humanities. And at the same time, we failed to appreciate the poetry of science and the the aesthetics mm-hmm. that are there. So, mm-hmm. if I may pay you a compliment, I think your work unites uh, both of those things in in very elegant and life enhancing ways. Well, well, thank you. My guest today has been Alan Lightman. His book is "Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine." Alan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.